Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger, but you knew that. It's a great day to be alive. Hope you're having a good one, doing something fun and positive as things are slowly opening back up. I hope you've been able to get out and see your loved ones and maybe go someplace interesting that is not your house. Do a little bit more exercise, maybe. I hope that's happening. Hey, I've got a great conversation to share with you today. Let me ask you a few questions. Why are some millionaires miserable while many in poverty can figure out a way to live a happy life? Hmm? Does a rapidly improving economy always lead to more well-being? How does optimism affect our economic futures? These are some of the big questions that Carol Graham of the Brookings Institution has tackled in her decades of extensive research into the economics of happiness, and we're going to talk to her in just a few minutes. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I've been thinking about this uh, introduction for a week now since uh, Stacy and I have been down in Florida at the beach with our kids. We practice as much social distance as we could while enjoying, thoroughly enjoying a change of scenery. We're back now and entering our new summer normal, which will be interesting. Kids are taking a lot of online classes, which is a new thing. Never even considered that this might happen. One of the neat innovations that's coming out of the quarantine is that There are people out there teaching one-off courses on everything from kids' literature to history to geology, and it's pretty fascinating, actually. You got to find the course that they're into, but they're digging it. Well, during this trip to Florida, you know, obviously what's been dominating the news has been the death of George Floyd and the resulting protests and, yes, riots that have come out of it. And I just haven't known what I was going to say. I don't want to fill your day with a lot of overly emotional words from a privileged white guy. So I'll just say this, that I believe that what we're doing here at Crazy Money matters because I have a lot of narratives in my head about the way the world is. And sometimes we're presented with data that doesn't fit with those narratives. For example, I think the United States of America is as good a structure for government as any human beings have strived to live under in history. And yet, it's clear that we do not live in a perfect country. And that creates pain in my head, but that pain is what is required of thinking individuals to be true to their pursuit of the truth. Because just because we've created narratives in our head doesn't mean that they're actually manifesting in the world around us. And I think that one of the things we can do is to continue to read as much as we can and to continue to have conversations with people with whom we don't agree, to try to appreciate their point of view and to try to evolve our thinking into how the world actually is and what we can do to make it a better place. And as I'm watching these riots and all the clips of the horrific murder of George Floyd, I keep thinking to myself that a lot of these problems that we have come back to a lack of economic justice in our society. And just because inequality exists doesn't mean any one of us should feel guilty about it. I don't want to be a purveyor of shame and guilt, but I do believe that we have to recognize the reality that many of us that are super successful were born on third or second base, or we just had advantages along the way. Even if it was only two parents who loved us, that's a huge advantage. And if you had that advantage, it's an advantage. So one of the things Stacey and I continue to do is to say, what can we do to be a part of solving and giving other people the opportunities that we had? And that's why Stacey and I have chosen Year Up as our number one philanthropic priority. You may have heard me talk about this before, and I interviewed the CEO and founder, Gerald Chertavian, last year. 
What Europe is, is a job training program for inner city youth or young adults, rather. It's like high school graduates or recipients of the GED for whom college didn't work out. They're working in fast food or they're working in retail. And while there's nothing inherently wrong with those jobs, they just are not on a career path to create a living wage for themselves and their families. And so what Europe does is provides a stipend for these young adults while they take a six-month course in both personal behavior and attitudes and technical skills. At the end of those six months, there's an internship that Europe helps facilitate for them. And at the end of that internship, most of those interns end up going to work for those companies where they interned. The others end up getting placed with other companies with whom their skills might be a better fit. In its 20-year history, Europe has put over 25,000 young adults through this program. And if you think about it, that's a small town of people who would not be paying taxes, not anywhere near the level they would be because of year up, who would not feel confident in themselves that they are a worthy member, a fully worthy and equal member of society, that they wouldn't know the value of hard work. They wouldn't know the value of looking somebody in the eye and shaking their hand firmly. And Stacy and I, like I said, it, 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 we've made it our number one philanthropic priority because we believe in giving people an opportunity to prove who they can be. And Europe has proven to be the perfect conduit for our money to create opportunities in other people's lives. If you want to learn more, you can go to year up. That's Y E A R U P.org. Or you can scroll down to the show notes and click the give to year up button in the show notes. Okay. Let's talk about Carol Graham. Carol Graham is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and professor at the University of Maryland School of Public Policy. Carol's books include Happiness Around the World, The Paradox of Happy Peasants and Miserable Millionaires, and The Pursuit of Happiness, An Economy of Well-Being, both of which have been published in several languages. As I was talking before about narratives, there's so many narratives we all have in our head about what's going to make us happy. Well, more money will make us happy. Well, well, if that's the case, why are there so many miserable millionaires in the world? And why are so many people who are poor happy? That's the kind of question that Carol has spent her career investigating. For example, how do hope, uncertainty, optimism, inequality, and rapidly developing economies contribute to well-being? Her results, which are often counterintuitive, are a great reminder of what we should be keeping in mind when trying to optimize both our personal happiness and that of the societies in which we live. Hint, hint, the two are connected. Carol earned her AB at Princeton, an MA at Johns Hopkins, and a PhD at Oxford. In other words, she's like super smart and stuff. And you'll note that at the beginning of the conversation, we refer to Sir Angus Deaton, who is the Princeton economist whom I interviewed last year, who co-authored the study along with Daniel Kahneman, whom she also mentions later, that concluded that there is no additional happiness to be gained past $75,000 a year in income. And it's also worth mentioning, there's some nuance here. The happiness Kahneman and Deaton are referring to there is hedonic happiness, meaning yesterday, did you cry? Did you laugh? Were you stressed? Were you angry? Things like that. There's a second question about life meaning, which is, say you're looking at a ladder with 10 steps, where on that ladder would you say you would rank your life? And that's what's called life meaning. So I just wanted to offer that distinction before you hear it, because we use those phrases as if everyone understands it. Okay, you understand it. Why would you be listening to this if you weren't smart? You're smart. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, this is Carol Graham. Particularly poor African-Americans are much, much more hopeful 
about the future than poor whites. And they're also less likely to be in the deaths of despair category than poor whites. So if you think about it, it's very much a resilient story. It's a story of still believing in education, even though it's harder to get it. The culture of believing that the one thing that will make you better off, that people can't take away from you, is getting a good education. Mm. Versus poor whites are looking at relative declines in status. Their parents had privileged access to the stable blue-collar jobs that gave you a middle-class existence. Not just the middle-class existence and the stable income. They gave you respect. They gave you a community, right? It was the job and the stable family. Both are gone. With the manufacturing jobs went the stable marriages. My name is Paul Ollinger. I'm a stand-up comedian with a background in the corporate world. I hit the lottery when I worked at a small company called Facebook. I'm fascinated with money, why we're so obsessed with it, and how it makes us happy or not. Welcome to Crazy Money. Carol Graham, welcome to Crazy Money. It's great to be on. Thank you, Paul. Carol, why is it important for economists to study happiness? So what the work on the economics of happiness does is it introduces a way of measuring. I don't want to overstate the precision, but to give orders of magnitudes to different things that matter to people's life satisfaction, to their hope, to their worry, to their stress, to their well-being in general, using economic tools, but based on answers to surveys, based on questions that psychologists were much more likely to use 10 years ago, 20 years ago than economists. Economists, after a lot of skepticism, and believe me, I had dealt with a lot of it, including from Angus Deaton, who now uses the approach a lot. But <laughs> after, yeah, If you get it by Angus, then you're okay. Yeah. But after a lot of skepticism, I think people recognize that the ability to understand the non-income dimensions of human welfare is incredibly important to understanding deeper questions about economic behavior, but also about human welfare and also about how those different things affect people's investments in their own human capital and their futures. All issues which are of deep interest to economists. But prior to this, the you know, the standard approach was you are skeptical of survey data. You can only believe data that's based on real preferences, people's observable choices, and usually in a budget or consumption framework. And the idea was how people answer surveys is likely biased. There's no consequence to answering surveys. And so that data is not credible versus a consumption choice that is presumed to be a rational, optimal choice within a budget framework is much better data. You can observe it and somebody's had to make a trade-off if they buy A versus B. Well, it turns out, as we know much better now than we used to, that a lot of consumption choices are just really bad choices. You can be addicted to cigarettes or opioids. You want to keep up with the Joneses. You buy the big house out in the suburbs, and then the commute makes you miserable, <laughs> and on and on and on. So neither approach is perfect, but it's clear that this is a really good approach to take on questions where either you can't reveal or you can't observe a choice because people don't have the agency or the capacity to make a choice. You know, extremely poor people that can't make a choice, you know, a lot of their life is just survival, or when consumption choices are the result of addiction or other forms of keeping up with the Joneses peer effects. So when, right. when observable choices actually aren't welfare enhancing at all, and they could be actually welfare reducing. And we could see, for example, that we can see that in the data, smokers are less happier than non-smokers. Obese people are less happy than non-obese people. Well, if their consumption of cigarettes or food 
was welfare-enhancing rational choice, that doesn't make sense. But if you think about some choices being the result of either addiction or whatever it might be, then you start to understand why we need to depart from those very rigid assumptions to fully understand how humans behave and how those behaviors matter to both their current welfare and their future outcomes. And just one last point on this without, you know, I don't want to belabor it. So the initial skepticism was that this approach departed from A, this rational choice behavior, the, you know, kind of consumption choices, but it also departed with a very narrow definition of human welfare, which was basically utility. And every individual has a utility function and, you know, their choice maximize their utility. And if you simplify that, it's much easier to model choices mathematically because you make that utility function fairly simple. You don't add emotions in or you don't add bad choices in or you don't <laughs> add in human irrationality. Right. But it turns Economists out- Economists don't those, like emotion yeah, and rationality. Or, right. But take all those things out and you get really bad models of mm, human behavior. Right. So over time, I think what gave us traction was that as more and more of us worked in this field, and I was one of the early crazy people working with psychologists, oh my God, like Danny Kahneman, who turned out to be just fine. Right. But the more, particularly as the next stage of sort of next generation of young economists started taking this on, and we had more and more papers published in respectable journals, this was a fight. I mean, it didn't happen easily. And at the same time, the more and more research that was done showed that the way people answer these surveys is actually very consistent. And that what we are picking up when we look at somebody's life satisfaction score or their stress score, whatever, is actually confirmed by both psychological measures of how people smile, genuine Duchenne smiles, by different frontal lobes in the brain, by genes that carry more alleles that have higher levels of serotonin. So we've had some support from research in beyond economics, but in biology and genetics, more, you know, deeper psychology. And then the last bit, I think, of the research that I've always been most interested in that's also, I think, given us some traction is that not only do the measures of this, you know, reported well-being or, you know, human welfare via happiness and life satisfaction and these other measures, not only are they validated by consistent, you know, by consistent ways that people answer the survey, but actually people who have higher levels of well-being do better in the future and it affects their behaviors. They do better in the income dimension, in the labor market, in the social arena, and certainly, certainly in the health arena. So I think, you know, we gradually got to a point that I think this is a robust subfield of economics and it's actually more of a, a measurement approach in the social sciences more generally. So have you arrived at any universal truths of happiness through your work? Or through your study, not just through your work, but has the field arrived and including what you've contributed to it, has the field arrived at some universal truths of happiness? Yeah. Well, one of the, the things I first did most was not arriving at universal truths, but sort of debunking universal truths in economics. <laughs> Which ones did and, you debunk? Uh, well, so there are some universally consistent patterns, and then I'll talk about what I debunked in economics, but mm -hmm. the universally consistent patterns are that despite money doesn't buy happiness, income matters. So we know that people who are destitute are going to be less satisfied with their lives. They may be happy at the moment, but they're going to be much less satisfied when we ask them, you know, life course assessments, because those 
people who are destitute don't have much choice over the lives they can lead. They can't just be an artist because they love art or they can't be an economist or a Facebook investor, right? They often don't have those choices. <laughs> right. So absolutely income plays a role. It doesn't play, you want to think about it, kind of a log linear relationship. So it's not a straight line between income and higher levels of well-being at all. It very much tapers off after a certain amount of income. What is enough income varies by the context, right? I mean, it takes a lot more money to have a good life in the United States than it does even, you know, in Costa Rica. So what's enough? I'm not sure we fully know, but certainly meeting basic needs, having opportunities or the opportunity to pursue opportunities. And after that, money plays much less of a role. So what else matters? Health is hugely important because you can have all the money in the world, but if you don't have health, you know, your capabilities go away. Relationships matter. People in a partnership who are married tend to be happier than those who are not. But the causality does not run from like getting married to happiness. It's just the happier people are more likely to get married mm. or to have you know friendships or those things. Employment matters tremendously. It matters on its own above and beyond money. In fact, people will trade off a lot of income if you do a kind of comparison to be employed rather than to be unemployed. You know, so in other words, just being unemployed, it has its own negative effect well beyond the money. Is it the uncertainty of where your next check is coming from, or is it a sense of belonging that you lose when you lose a job? A sense of life purpose and belongings, particularly we find men tend to navigate unemployment worse than women <laughs> no. because women tend to, you know, have additional roles as mothers, you mm -hmm. know, it doesn't mean I love my job. I also have three kids that have been, you know, I don't think that the, not that men don't love their kids, but I think just by definition, women tend to be more of the multitaskers in that range. The other thing about you do lose bonds and social connections. We find, for example, that unemployed people are much less unhappy when there are a lot of unemployed people around them in their neighborhood. So it doesn't mean they want to be unemployed, but the stigma and the loneliness of being unemployed, it's harder to be unemployed if everybody around you is successfully employed. And then the other thing related to that is we're finding as we're looking at what we call meaningful work, people who have meaning and purpose in their work lives, they tend to be willing to trade off a lot of income to have autonomy in their jobs, be respected in the workforce, and to be in, engaged in activities that they care about. And, you know, that's a broad definition. It could kind of like why musicians may have much less money, but are much more passionate about what they do. That has a positive well-being effect as well. And then the last thing that's remarkably universal is this U-shaped relationship between age and happiness. I know you mentioned you talked to Jonathan Rausch. I don't know if he talked about the U-curve. That's all we talked about. That's, okay, that's, yeah, that's well, almost I, everything we talked about. But yeah, okay. that, that was the core of our conversation. On, I got him hooked on that idea. Oh, you did? And well, he wrote a whole brilliant book. I've had 60 plus people on the show and his was one of the ones that resonated with me because I see the happiness curve in myself and in my peers to a great degree. I mean, we're in our late 40s or early 50s. We've achieved a lot of things and we still look around going like, is this it? You know? And so Jonathan's work really resonated. Yeah. So we just finished a paper with Danny Blanchflower where we found the curve holds. We looked across a number of data sets, looked at our own past studies, looked at a bunch of different things. But we've got up to about 145 countries where the curve holds. 
the U-shaped curve in the middle age mm-hmm. between life satisfaction and also reported happiness and the middle age years. But we've also found that there, and I found this before as well, that in those same years, you get a hump shape rather than a U-shape for stress, suicide, lack of sleep, all sorts of markers of ill-being. Mm. And when the deaths of despair in the United States where people are dying prematurely, it's exactly in those years. So the middle age years have, I think there are many reasons for this, and I won't go on too long since you've already had Jonathan, but a couple of them are relevant, I think, to kind of why there's this universal curve, which is that, you know, people have the double burdens in middle age of young children, teenage kids, older parents, their aspirations tend to align with reality at this point in life. <laughs> That's you know, such a kind. You can't play guitar and sing, you really aren't going to be a rock star. Get over it and move on. That can be a tough process. That's such a kind way to put it. Yeah, exactly. And then there's sort of psychologists talk a lot about emotional wisdom as people age. I talk a lot, or think about in economist terms, of the standard deviation of bad experiences is much worse for younger kids. You know, the first, I've had three teenagers in the house at once. Thank God they're now all over 20. But, you know, a bad experience is the end of the world. Right. You know, by the time you get to your 50s, you've had so many bad experiences, they roll off your back <laughs> unless they're particularly, you know, particularly bad. Yes. And then the last thing on this, you may have talked about this with Jonathan, but the U-shape actually holds for chimpanzees beyond humans. Mm-hmm. They have uh, less smiles in their middle age years. So there's something biological going on, which is why I think this is a really exciting field because what you are trying to, it's a little bit like IQ and does the environment or genes determine IQ? And when you think about what determines well-being, well, part of it is indeed your environment, what you have to navigate as a child, as an adult, whatever, and, and the long-lasting reach sometimes of the earlier part of it. But the other part is what you're endowed with. And there's a bell curve in the distribution of well-being across people. So most people are in the bell and they're kind of average. And on average, mm-hmm. if you, you know, if you have higher levels of well-being, you're just better equipped to navigate stuff. You're likely to be more resilient. It just makes life easier than if you're a curmudgeon, right? We've all experienced both kinds of people. But then they're at the very tails of the distribution. You know, it's much, there are less of them, but the least happy people and the most happy people are very, very different. So the least happy people care most about money. So money matters more to their well-being, mm-hmm. um, perhaps because they lack some of these other dimensions. They're not very resilient to negative shocks, like an unemployment shock. They may never get over that in their entire life. And the most happy people care the least about money, but they care a lot about learning and creativity. Mm. They don't even care that much about full-time employment. Both are outliers. If I was an outlier on one of those sides of the tail, I'd really rather be on the happier side of the tail. But again, we see that kind of it's an area or a science where We are able to use economic tools and economic measures and large-end data, but also are beginning to and are increasingly able to account for things like biological traits and what's innate to each individual or where they are in the the distribution of well-being with how they navigate their environments and then how that in turn determines their outcomes. One of the concepts you're well known for working on is something called a happy peasant, miserable millionaire phenomenon. Can you talk more about that, please? Sure. The miserable millionaire part was in the title of my book, my 2009 book. It initially started as a happy peasant and frustrated achiever phenomenon. And what <laughs> I, this is what actually got me into the entire study of well-being. So I 
started off. I'm from Peru, as I think I mentioned to you. Mm-hmm. I grew up between the United States and Peru, and my dad was involved in public health and an institute for malnourished infants. And so I grew up around a lot of poverty and a lot of public health challenges, and that's still very much a passion of mine. But I was doing studies in the slums of Lima and looking at a time of very high rates of growth and looking at mobility rates, income mobility, people moving out of poverty at a very rapid pace. And in fact, it was remarkable that in a 10-year period, the rate at which people were moving out of poverty in these areas was much higher than mobility rates in the United States, the so-called land of opportunity, Mm -hmm. which it isn't anymore. But at the time, we still were sort of there. That's what Um, Richard Reeves says, but he just made that up because he's English. He said that we're... That America isn't the land of opportunity. I'm just kidding. I'm joking. He's a mobility guru. Yes, indeed. We had a great conversation. Very interesting and eye-opening his work. But please go ahead. I'm I'm sure. So in any event, I decided to go back and ask these... We had overtime data on these respondents who had been observed three and four times over 10 years. So we knew exactly how they'd done. We even could measure if their trajectory had been very volatile, right? So they'd gained and lost and gained and lost, or they just continued going up income life. But I wanted to know how they thought they were now compared to 10 years ago, because they'd come out of poverty and were basically burgeoning middle class compared to people that had stayed poor or tended to be more rural, or they were there, you know, the urban people that hadn't had as much progress. And what we found was over half the people who had done the best in income terms said their economic situation was bad or very bad compared to 10 years ago. And then there were poor rural people who said they were the same or better. I thought this is a little weird. And my co-author and I at the time thought, well, maybe it was a day of survey thing. Maybe (laughs) Chile beat Peru in soccer that day. And so the survey was all messed up. We did it again. We kept getting these who I eventually called frustrated achievers and happy peasants. And then I got similar data for Russia and an even higher amount of the people who had had income gains said their situation was very bad compared to those who didn't. I've since then seen it for China. I now see it in doing my work on the geography of desperation in the United States, where you get people who've moved to the cities, you know, sort of within the country, and who are doing better, who tend to have hope for the future, but they're very critical of their current situation. They they actually have much better health standards than people who stayed in these hollowed out places in rural areas. So their objective health standards are good, but their reported health standards are worse because they're more critical. Same with how satisfied they are with their city and all kinds of other things versus you've got these people who are kind of happy where they are in their communities. They like how things work. They're happy today, but they have absolutely no hope for the future. And so that still fits into this kind of how aspirations can change the way you assess your life, your life satisfaction, that may catch up and get better over time. So when I think about happy peasants and frustrated achievers, it's not clear the frustrated achievers are all that bad because sometimes you need some frustration to pursue a goal. The question is, are they frustrated for their life? And then the miserable millionaires. Um, can, can we just for one second stay oh, on yeah. the frustrated achiever? Because I think that's interesting. So what's happening there is objectively they're better off. Right. But subjectively, they're now comparing. There could be many factors going, but one could be that their aspirations have increased. The base of people or circumstances with which they're comparing their lives is very different than it was when they were back in the favela, whatever the neighborhood was where they grew up. The reference point has changed. Right. Or they're just one of these people who some discontent is a motivator 
to get out to improve your circumstances. But even when you improve them, that discontent remains because you're always searching for something more. Right. And so, for example, there's experiments like this have been done a lot. And we've done some work on it in terms of inequality in U.S. zip codes and states. And there have been some in very poor places, too, in in third world, where you take two people with the same amount of income in purchasing power parity terms, right? So whatever, compared to the place where they live, their level of income is, say, an eight on a 10-point scale for their place. So they're eights. And if they're in a neighborhood where everybody around them averages between five and eight, they're happy. You take the eights and put them in a neighborhood where the average is a nine and they're much less happy. Right. So that's a little bit the story with happy peasants and frustrated achievers. In China, one of the things that happened, and their frustrated achievers were also committing suicide at very record rates for a while. In that, Russia. That's leveled out. China. In China, sorry. In Russia, the story is more complicated because of the transition that was left behind out of the labor force males that were committing suicide. But in China, what you saw is people who worked in the private sector, they were very much the frustrated achievers because they'd taken riskier jobs, high earning jobs compared to people in the public sector, but they were miserable. And they were miserable because they had not enough time to sleep and not enough time for leisure time. And the suicide rate and reported depression rate was very high. And the place where that's occurring now is India. So in both China and India during this period, this is one of my progress paradoxes that I talk about when in periods of very rapid growth, you see life satisfaction decline dramatically and suicide rates go up. India now has the world's highest rate of suicide. It's been steady for a while, but during this high growth period, it's been very high. China's has now evened out now that the transition period's over and things have stabilized a little bit. But the idea is that these very rapid growth periods, which create big winners and big losers, mm. or in relative terms, big losers, really affect people's well-being. And the other paradox right now, pre-COVID, was the United States, where we were boasting record lows of unemployment, which was a farce because 20% of prime-age males are out of the labor force. But you know, the U3, that unemployment rate measures people who are actively looking for work. Mm-hmm omits the 20% of people who've just prime-age men who've dropped out of the labor force and an equivalent amount of women, booming stock markets, everything seemed rosy, and yet we had a whole proportion of society dying of deaths of despair, Mm -hmm. right? And and, one of the richest countries in the world, and to the point where our mortality rate was going up rather than down, and still is, and with COVID, it's going to be even worse. But again, there's this, it's understanding what our ability to measure well-being in these different ways to match standard economic measures highlights that standard economic measures miss a lot of how people are experiencing an economic process that in the aggregate looks good. It highlights winners and losers much more. It highlights what matters to people and that, you know, relative things matter in the income dimension that the human side of things matters. And so the U S I think is the worst example of a progress paradox because yes, we're one of the richest countries in the world with theoretically a lot of opportunity. We know the data doesn't bear that out anymore, but it's a very much a winner take all system and people who are at the bottom who lack access to lots of the most important factors that come into determining well-being and health insurance, decent health, predictability, 
having uncertainty every week, if you're in one of the gig economy jobs or low-skilled jobs, deleterious to well-being. You can't plan for yourself. You can't plan for your family. You don't have family time, basically. And so, again, it's one of the things that this approach has helped me not only to understand, but to be able to provide robust measures of it that we see that in the U.S., for example, we have much more inequality, not just in income, but in well-being across the rich and the poor. Poor in Latin America are much less likely to report stress the previous day than the poor in the U.S., which objectively doesn't make a lot of sense. Shouldn't be the case. Right. And also, the poor in Latin America are much more likely to believe that hard work will get them ahead than the poor in the U.S. The rich in the U.S. score much higher than the rich in Latin America, but the point is that our inequality of well-being has been highlighting the fragility of our society, and which now is frighteningly clear in so many different ways. Yeah. And I want to come back to that about uncertainty and about how our view of the future affects our current happiness and that of our children. But before I lose the miserable millionaire pen, I want to go back to that. Hey, everybody, it's Paul. If you're interested in the economics of happiness, I wanted to encourage you after you listen to this complete interview with Carol Graham, rate it five stars, write a nice review and share it with your friends, hint, hint, to go and check out some of the interviews with some of her colleagues that we've referred to so far. There was one with Richard Reeves of the Brookings Institution. He wrote a book called Dream Hoarders, and it's all about the upper middle class and the advantages they enjoy in the United States. Our interview was July 2nd, 2019. Another one was with Jonathan Rauch, who wrote a book called The Happiness Curve. He's also at the Brookings Institution. He writes for The Atlantic as well. And that was all about how happiness dips in midlife and then recovers later on. Our interview was on January 21st, 2020. And then, of course, as you've heard me mention several times, Sir Angus Deaton, the Nobel Prize winning economist at Princeton University, who co-authored a study with Daniel Kahneman about how happiness does not increase past $75,000 a year in income. And my interview with him was September 16th, 2019. If you dig this kind of economics of happiness stuff, you'll love those interviews too. Listen to the rest of Carol Graham, then go back and check those out. Okay, here's me and Carol again. So how did the Frustrated Achiever study work into the miserable millionaire phenomenon? Well, to be really honest, it was for the title of my book. Because <laughs> it was provocative. Yeah. <laughs> so I will be honest. But it's not, you know, the data definitely show that, as I mentioned, that there's a point at which enough income where people can have a stable life and make choices in terms of the kind of lives they want to lead is very important. Mm -hmm. And so income matters. After that, it's really not clear. And it varies across cultures and societies. It certainly tapers off the relationship between income and life satisfaction, sort of in a, it's not a linear thing like that. It's Mm -hmm. more of a, you know, a log curve. I've seen one study only that was suggestive and interesting that for some in a couple of countries, there's an S so the very richest people, actually, all of a sudden, money starts to matter more to their well-being. Mm-hmm. So that at, at the very top, now that can't be happiness. That's got to be. Is that bigger. because it's so tied up in their identity? or I think so. Yeah. I think so. So there is definitely a bit of evidence for, for millionaires who are miserable. There's certainly a lot of evidence that at that level of income, that on average, more money is just not going to affect life satisfaction in a positive way anymore. 
So coming back to some of that, the current situation in the U.S., will you explain the Gatsby curve? So the Gatsby curve was coined by Alan Kruger, a very brilliant economist at Princeton who died tragically about a year ago. And it was about, depending on where you were born in the income distribution, what the odds were that you could get above your parents' place in the income distribution. And what Kruger found, and since then, Raj Chetty and others have found, is that the ability of somebody born in the bottom 20% of the distribution in the 1950s, their ability to live well beyond their parents' point in the distribution to live better was about 80%. And versus now for people born in the bottom 20%, roughly, distribution, odds of getting above that are only about 50%. So our intergenerational mobility rate has gone down over time. When exactly that started to happen, there's a lot of debate. There's some studies that show that actually our highest mobility rates when there was less of a Gatsby curve were before even the 1920s. But at the time, the big migration from farming to urban areas. And so people whose children of farmers who were able to move to industrialized places lived dramatically better than their parents. So that was one burst of mobility. There's some other data that shows that after World War II and with the New Deal, that there was another another mobility boost. One of the things that's really hard to do is to compare countries along these lines. And we can compare countries today, and we know that our intergenerational mobility rates are among the lowest of the OECD. We're on par with Spain and Portugal. But we don't know when that happened. And we don't know, because there are very few countries, the U.S. is one of them, that has long-term data on intergenerational mobility, but they're just a couple of European countries. So we know now that we're worse than we used to be, and we know then that we are worse than a lot of countries on those fronts, but we don't have full clarity on how our changes over time compared to other countries' changes. How does the belief or lack thereof of the ability to achieve a brighter future for yourself or for your children affect short-term happiness and consumption patterns? Basically, we've done some different kinds of work. Some are perceptions of getting ahead, perceptions of upward mobility, some more recent work on raw optimism, and they're related, but they're different. So to the first one, people with higher levels of life satisfaction are much more likely to believe they have prospects of upward mobility. And I think there's a two-way causality there. Sorry, the dog. What kind of dog is it? It's a mini golden doodle. What's his name? I think Her name. stop. Bella. Hello, Bella. Yeah, well, she's in the other room. She'd love to be in here. That's but. okay. So people with, who have higher prospects of upward mobility for themselves and their children, for sure, do better over time. I've shown this to be true in Russia, in the United States, in Latin America. As I said, there's kind of a two-way causality because people with higher levels of life satisfaction are much more likely to have higher prospects of upward mo- perceived upward mobility and vice versa. You could argue that some of the higher levels of life satisfaction have to do with the fact that as you look towards your future, you have hopes of a good life or a better life or a better life for your children. And then it's also possible that naturally happier people are more likely to have those optimistic beliefs. Both hold and they matter to the effort that people put into their education, their children's education, to their health. They're they're much less likely to undertake 
risky behaviors that will damage their health. More recently, we're doing two lines of work based on the importance of hope and some of it in Latin America, because there's only so much I can do working on deaths of despair in the United States. So I need some hope. And <laughs> Latin America tends to be a very hopeful place. But we've done these studies of hope among young adolescents in deprived and poor areas. The same somewhere I did the Happy Peasants and Frustrated Achievers, which is now poor to lower middle income. There's a metro, but there's still plenty of people that don't have piped water and tapped in electricity and their houses are made of prefab. And But there's some pavement, there's a metro, there's a good uh, health post. You know, there things are definitely getting better. And we did this survey of 18 to 19-year-old kids and asked them all kinds of questions about their self-esteem and their willing to postpone income today for more income later and their education aspirations. Did they want to go to college or post-grad? And our findings were remarkable. 85% of our kids said they were going to go to college or post-grad education. Now, public education isn't great, but it's available and there's public university education, it's still a sacrifice if you're poor because you don't enter the labor market at 18, you go on into college. And then it turns out we have some past data on these kids and now we just repeated the survey, but the higher education aspiration kids actually achieve higher levels of education. They had lower impatience rates in terms of delayed gratification for money. They were much less likely to take, you know, do really risky health things like unsafe sex or drug use. I mean, they all smoked and drank, but whatever. But, you know, that, <laughs> but that on the margin. Come on, they're kids. On, yeah, on the margin, the hopeful kids not only were more hopeful, they were also resilient. They'd all had negative shocks, you know, lost a parent, been a crime victim, all kinds of stuff. But their hope definitely translated into future-oriented behaviors and better outcomes. Could you identify sources for that optimism and hope? This is actually, and it could take me another hour to go on about the work we're doing in this area, but I won't do that. But some of it has to do with a culture of believing in education, and Peruvians do so. And that actually matches the hope work we're doing in the U.S. that I can talk about for a second along those lines. So part is the belief that education matters, that it can get you ahead, and that it's in a way the only thing that can get you ahead if you start off poor. And the other was having somebody who was a mentor or a a caretaker, somebody, you know, Mm. they almost all had a decent relationship with somebody in their household. It didn't have to be a parent. I've been repeating these surveys because we find in our data for the U.S. that poor African-Americans and poor Hispanics, particularly poor African-Americans, are much, much more hopeful about the future than poor whites. Why is that? That seems counterintuitive. It doesn't it. And they're also less likely to be in the deaths of despair category than poor whites. So, if you think about it, it's very much a resilient story. It's a story of still believing in education, even though it's harder to get it, to get higher education, because the culture of believing that the one thing that will make you better off, that people can't take away from you, is getting a good education. Mm. Versus poor whites are looking at relative declines in status. They used to have, their parents had, privileged access to the stable blue-collar jobs that gave you a middle-class existence, not just the middle-class existence and the stable income. They gave you respect. They gave you a community, right? It was the job and the stable family. Both are gone. With the manufacturing jobs went the stable marriages. 
Poor minorities have always had to multitask. They have much more connectedness in terms of extended family ties or community ties that serve as buffers in bad times and as support in good times. And so what we're finding in our initial look, we're comparing an African-American deprived school district in Missouri with a white one. And we're finding that conditional on graduating high school, the African-American kids are more likely to go on to pursue college than Mm. the white ones. Mm. I think there, there's something else going on that's strange in the U.S. right now and very depressing. And unfortunately, seems to be at least somewhat hinged to our politics, which is the the sort of, there's a historical part, which is not political at all, which was that if you were white and you finished high school, you would get a good, stable, blue-collar job that was a lifelong contribute part of your life and to your income and to your respect and status. Versus because minorities didn't have the same access to those jobs, they had they wanted to get out of where they were, they had to get more education. Part of it is just that historical trajectory. But the second part now, I think, is difficult to explain skepticism of elites and the coast and science and that's in the heartland of the country. And that skepticism has been passed on to the next generation. And that's coincided with a time that if you don't have a college education, your opportunities in the labor force are very, very limited. That's re- um, reinforcing that skepticism. Right. Yeah. Right. So anyway, so hope matters. And then the last thing we did a study, a historical study, we had panel data of optimists born in the 1930s and forties and optimists and non-optimists, right. Comparing people in this panel. And we found that those who reported to be optimistic in their 20s, based on a question about whether or not you thought life would work out mm-hmm. you know, with a scale, the optimists lived longer. They were much more likely to be alive in 2015. Mm-hmm. And the difference was large. I mean, it was a good five-year life expectancy difference. We also found, in looking over time, that... African-Americans and women both increased in their optimism in the 1970s when gender rights and civil rights improved. The only group that experienced a drop in optimism around the same time, around the first decline in manufacturing, were less than college-educated white males. So if you think about the deaths of despair, if you think about what's going on in our politics, if you think about all these things that seem to have at least a rough association we could have picked up on the fact that something was going very badly for a particular cohort that is now not only doing incredibly badly in terms of health and well-being, drug use, life expectancy, but the spillover effects from that decline in well-being and associated with economic trends has now really affected our politics, our national coherence. It's brought back you know, levels of racism and other things that we thought we were over. It certainly shows that people who, you know, believe in their future do better and people that don't tend to be much more vulnerable to risky behaviors and bad outcomes. But also that if we had been tracking well-being regularly, as the Brits do, I've done a lot of work with the ONS in Britain, they have well-being in their statistics regularly and other countries are doing, New Zealand, Canada, the list is getting very long. If these had been in our official statistics and we were just used to looking at well-being trends along with other measures like GNP measures, this classic you know, unemployment trends and everything else, production trends, we could have picked up on this and noticed that we had a very vulnerable set of our society a long time before things got 
to a point where they're essentially irreversible. Well, there's the knowledge that there's a problem and then there's the political will to do something about it. And how do you convince the powers that be who are serving four-year terms to think in decades? Of course. Before we had neither the knowledge, we might have had more will in those days than mm-hmm. we do now. Right. But we didn't have the knowledge. So, no, this can't solve everything. But I think we wake up to the fact that these are very inexpensive markers to collect and that they can give us a way to take the temperature, essentially, of the health of our society on a regular basis by adding four questions to you know, some of our national surveys. What is there to lose? Right. And when you know, well-being is pretty stable across populations. So when you see a big decline in a particular group, that's something to look into. So I am going to give you a magic wand to create the greatest amount of happiness for the greatest number of people in the United States. How do you apply your wand to make progress in that direction? Well, I'll stay away from politics, but I could bet (laughs) where I'm going on this one. Um, I would completely and dramatically restructure our tax and safety net system Mm. so that our society was not split into a very vulnerable, low-earning, insecure group, the haves and have-nots. And it's not just on money. It's not at all about money. It's about basic human needs. It's about health insurance. It's Mm -hmm. about having respect and stability and being able to plan your work week more than a week ahead. And, you know, when you think about the current crisis now, it's exposing all these weaknesses, right? Other countries have furloughed workers or kept them on half pay or something. And part of that is it's an income support that's obviously essential, but part of it is peace of mind that when things turn around, they will have jobs to go back to. We have, you know, 22 million unemployment claims in the past four weeks. And those people have no idea if their jobs will be there after. They're looking at a cliff. And yet we have incredible amounts of wealth and tax cuts going to billionaires. And if you look at the US markers in terms of the national comparisons, which I don't read too much into because they're so aggregated. But at the same time, the fact that we a decade ago were at about number 10 and we're now at number 19, I mean, that's a very big drop, and we're one of the wealthiest countries in the world. And that is all due to inequality and well-being. And it's not just inequality in income. It's inequality in hope. It's inequality in stress and worry and anger and all sorts of awful things. And pain, reported pain is another one. Our poor are more likely than our rich to report pain, particularly white former manufacturing workers and miners. But there's still... Why do Americans report more pain than 30 other countries in the world, many of whom are much poorer than we are? Right. There's something really broken in our society, and fixing it requires having a cohesive safety net that doesn't vary by state. It doesn't vary by you know, what kind of job you have, health insurance, just something that's what people have. People in some really poor countries have good health insurance, mm-hmm. right? Latin America may not be great, but almost every country put Venezuela aside. Most countries just have national health systems. People don't, you know, worry that if they lose their job, they're never going to be able to go to the doctor again. It's just mind boggling. This seems to fit the recurring theme of the cost of uncertainty in your work that there's more pain caused by uncertainty than many other factors, that even crime isn't that big of a deal if you live in a place where you should expect crime. 
Yes, that's true. And so it's dealing with uncertainty. So, so is there an argument to be made that the rich are better off and would be happier if they paid more taxes, assuming, assuming, again, I, I don't want to dive into the political, but let's assume that those additional taxes actually resulted in improvements for the less fortunate. I think that it's without question that we would have a much more coherent society. We'd have less crime. We'd be much less vulnerable to pandemic like this spreading everywhere. I mean, I'm sure there are people that just could care less, but I think for a lot of us who are aware that we have better jobs and better lives, knowing that our fellow citizens weren't going to not just be hungry if they lost their job, but not be able to go to the hospital when they're sick or not be able to afford their children's health care, you know, when mm-hmm. they have cancer or something. I mean, right now you see all these supposedly lovely stories of people doing GoFundMe so they can pay for a sick child. Well, that's great. But to have to rely on that, that we as a society that is this wealthy, is that callous to a significant portion of our society suffering? I just don't see how that could be well-being enhancing in the aggregate at all. Maybe except for the miserable millionaires, to go back to that. <laughs> the current pandemic demonstrates that the weakest links in our ecosystems, it will impose pain on everyone. And certainly the pain is not being shared equally right now, by no means. But everyone is experiencing, almost everyone is experiencing, at the very least, significant inconvenience for the short run. And a lot of uncertainty that's terrible for well-being. Tremendous because, uncertainty. Yeah, because, you know, even for well-off people, I, I'm look, I've got my twins that have another year of college to go, and I'm looking at my remainders of my college fund that was supposed to cover four years. And I don't know, you know, and (laughs) that, again, that's a very privileged position to even be in, Yeah, but it's the uncertainty. And I I think there's a deeper and more worrisome kind of uncertainty about really how do we come out of this? Do we come out of it as a more coherent society that works together to improve the bad spot we're in, or do we come out of it with, even more division and, you know, frightening potential political and civil violence implications. I don't want to be too dire, but I, I think that's got to be on a lot of people's mind. And that's, that's incredibly anxiety inducing. Yeah. Very interesting insights into what's going on today. Before we wrap up, I want to ask you a personal question. Does all the work you've done studying happiness and economics, does that keep you more grounded and help you manage your desires and aspirations as a as a financial entity of your own. Well, I'm this. I've raised three kids and financed them on my own, so I can't say, "Oh, I don't care about money or I never worry about it." Of course, I do. And you know, do I still have high aspirations for my work? Of course, I do. I'm, I'm not in the business of telling people how to be happy. I mean, I always say that. I mean, if you look at the equations we use to measure this stuff, it's not. You know, we're not like saying, "Does unemployment make you unhappy?" really measuring in a very robust way. So at one level, I don't think I think about, oh, these lessons in my own life. And I probably don't have to because I actually really love what I do. I mean, absolutely passionate about it. And I learn from it. I hope that I find some lessons that are useful to inform policy and to, I do a lot of work now talking to people who actually do things like try and teach opioid patients, children, resilience and things like that. And I always think, why do they want to talk to me? I've got this helicopter view with all these numbers and metrics, but 
for people that are you know active in the field, having the bigger picture view, ha- having a sense of how what they do compares to the broader patterns seems to be helpful. I take a lot of joy in that. One of the benefits of doing this podcast is I am weekly reminded of the fact that more doesn't always equal better. Yeah, that's a great point. It's kind of, it's not more, it's the better. What is better, right? And right. So anyway, well, it's great to talk to you. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Where can our listeners find out more about you and the work that you've done? Probably the best is www.brookings.edu slash experts slash Graham. G-R-A-H-M. And it's Carol Graham. G-R-A-H-A-M. Graham right. like the cracker. <laughs> if anybody still remembers what Graham crackers are. Not the unit of measurement. Well, Carol Graham, right. thank, thank you again for joining us. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, thanks for having me. And do you have a link to the podcast? Because I'd love to see some of the other. Do you save the old episodes? Oh, absolutely. Awesome. Well, take care. Thanks, stay Carol. Away, stay away from tattoo parlors and massage. I will. <laughs> you too. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much, Carol. I really appreciate you taking the time to be a part of Crazy Money. I find your work to be very interesting. Folks, if you like what we're doing here at Crazy Money, I sure would appreciate it if you would rate and review the show. You go to the show page and then you scroll all the way to the bottom past all the old episodes and you'll see some stars there and it'll say rate and review. Click a whole bunch of stars. Write something thoughtful and nice about what you get out of the program. And if you have a minute, share the program with three friends, three friends that you know who are into thinking through complex issues and have the patience and mental wherewithal to do so. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for being with us today. Mike Carano, make me sound smart.